Andy. Thanks, Andy. And just a little um, emphasis that it, it's really a lot better, I think, if you actually ask the question live and not type it in. Uh, but we'll take it any way you want to deliver it. It's just nicer to have a little bit of so-called human contact. <laughs> so, um, so for those of you who may be new, this is a you know a spontaneous gathering that we started a couple of weeks ago just as a way to hang out in this time of social social isolation, which is being lifted here in Colorado starting this Sunday. My golf course literally right out my window here just opened up. Um, so it'll be an incredibly interesting time to see what happens. Um, but that's a little bit beyond our scope, the kind of medical economic end of it. What, we're, what we do with these sessions, uh, if you may be new, is I just do the briefest little riff, or at least I try, try to keep it brief. Sometimes I just can't, I can't help myself. Um, and, and then it's much more freestyle and relaxed. It's just a campfire spirit type thing where the Q&A and the discussions are really the heart of what we're doing. But um, one thing I am trying to do with these sessions is give you some very brief, what, what I know somewhat playfully referring to as emergency, <laughs> emergency meditations, little like on the spot vaccine, so to speak, that I, I have to say personally, I'm, I'm using this stuff all the time um, throughout every day. They're extremely helpful for me. And so with that in mind, we're gonna repeat the first two because I think these are, in many ways, these are the core. And then I'm gonna add a third one today. And so the first one, of course, is the one breath meditation that I got from my teacher, Kepo Rinpoche. This comes from the Mahamudra tradition. So it's, it's a really quite profound practice in its immediacy and its applicability. Um, and to me, it, it plays a little bit with what, in fact, interestingly enough, Kempo Rinpoche's main student, his, his uh, protege, is uh, uh, Dzogchen Panop Rinpoche. And, and Panop Rinpoche often would playfully kind of chide us, his students, and say, you guys are just so infatuated with long meditation. <laughs> That's the way he say a long meditation. Not in any way to dismiss the validity. I'm, I'm a big fan of long meditation. I mean, I did a three-year retreat. Every year I go back into retreat. It's incredibly important. But it's also very interesting that in the Mahamudra Dzogchen lineages, allegedly the highest teachings in the Tibetan Buddhism, the maxim flips a little bit to uh, short sessions repeated often, short sessions repeated frequently, as short as one breath, which is what we'll be doing, and even shorter than that, just one flash, just one open. Um, and Trungpa Rinpoche himself used to talk about flashing the uh, open mind, the awakened mind. And so, um, Really, at one level, and I, and I can't remember, I'm not taking notes with these things, so I don't remember what I riffed on in previous sessions too extensively, but some of these short quotations are worth reiterating. And the one that comes to mind here is from the great um, comparative scholar of religion, proponent of the perennial philosophy, Houston Smith, um, where he says really so beautifully, the process of the path is to transform flashes of illumination into abiding light. That's really beautiful. Transform flashes of illumination into abiding light. And 
technically speaking, if a flash is what's called a nyam, a temporary experience, super common. But there's a difference between experience and realization. Experience isn't stable. It's like the morning mist. <clears throat> you want experience or nyam in Tibetan to mature into realization or tukpa in Tibetan, which is like a mountain, it's stable. Peak into a, pla a plateau, glimpse into a gaze. And uh, this actually constitutes the fourth of the five paths on the stages to enlightenment, the fourth path being, in fact, the path of meditation, familiarization. So again, as I'm prone to do, I promise short things, but I just, I just can't help myself. <laughs> so in the spirit of transforming flashes of illumination into abiding light, one breath meditation session. That's it, I did my meditation for today, session over. <laughs> I use this puppy like all the time as a way to uh, really kind of antidote remedy to contraction. I'm actually, I started drafting a book. You're the first to know about it. Let, yesterday morning, I started drafting a book. I think I'm gonna bump my fourth dream yoga book aside and I, I wanna write a book about the, the ubiquitous quality, the, the omnipresence of this contraction narrative. So I'm not going to get too going on that because obviously I got a whole book in mind. But I use the one breath meditation as a way to counteract this contraction. Um, whether I'm hearing something on news I don't want to hear. I'm, uh, you know, feeling something I don't want to feel. I'm engaged in some activity where I just get irritated, annoyed, pissed off, impatient. I mean, you know, the infinite litany of variations of this contraction motif. And so every time now I feel that, and that's why contraction is so helpful for me. This is a somatic visceral event. It's not a cognitive event. This is something I feel. And I'm sensitized now um, in this opportunity, like I'm, this is happening all the time, I'm sensitized now, every time I feel that contraction, which is really, it's like the heartbeat of ego, right? I, I do my little bardo yoga. Bardo yoga is a gap, pause, pause practice. That's bardo yoga on the spot. Gap practice on the spot. I pause, I take one breath, and I drop back into my body. So again, the importance of this for me has just been enormous. And so the second practice, I introduced last week is, is somewhat connected. Also super helpful for me is whenever you feel the urge to complain or criticize. Um, and like, maybe that happened to me like once a month ago. No, it happened like once a minute ago. Um, we live in there's literally an entire book, Culture of Complaint. We're, we're chronic complainers. Um, Lots of reasons for that. But the practice here is whenever you feel the urge to complain, and then all the little iterations of that, to criticize, to blah, 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 pause for just a second, another bardo yoga, gap, do a little instant, what's called vipassana. Vipassana is, is it's a, a multivalent or polysimous term, 
which means it has many, many different definitions and, and depending on the context. In this case, Vipassana is analytic meditation. And you can do this on the spot. Obviously, the longer, more analytic, Majamakal, I mean, those deeper analytics, super powerful, a little bit like long meditation is long analysis. But you can do Vipassana on the spot, um, kind of a cutting through meditation, contemplation on the spot. Anytime you want to complain, anytime you want to criticize, you pause. And then you ask yourself, this is the investigation, what am I feeling right now that I just don't want to feel? Whoa, what a humbling thing. And then you stay with that. You stay with that. If you complain, like I think I said this last week, if you complain, complaining is an out-of-body experience. Whenever you complain, you have left your body and you are now in your thinking, proliferating, um, kind of infected mind. And so you want to drop down, wake down, back into your body and stay with that feeling. And this is one reason the complaint, the culture of complaint is so amplified now is because there is a lot to complain about. All our comfort plan strategies, all our entertainment, distraction, retail therapies are gone. It's, it, pardon my French, it's a bitch fest out there, right? I mean, watch, watch the different radio talk show hosts. Listen, I mean, it's just like one litany of complaint after another. So use this as an opportunity. What am I feeling right now I don't want to feel? Stay with that. Your body will, and I know I didn't, I don't think I said this last week, your body will purify that unwanted experience within 90 seconds. The biochemical markers for any emotional upheaval, within 90 seconds, your body liberates them. And so if you keep the complaint attitude alive, you're the one that's doing CPR. You're the one that's shooting epi into it. You're the one that's putting this on a ventilator and you're not letting it die its natural death. And so um, feel the crappy feeling, whatever it is, and stay with that. That does not create karma. In fact, it purifies karma. What creates karma is reactivity from that, where you just start to riff and, and just you know complain, complain, complain. So one breath meditation conjoined with this kind of um, antidote, this anti-complaint meditation, I find this extremely helpful. And it, it actually, I find myself actually saying less, you know, taking more ownership and responsibility for what I'm feeling and not infecting others, um, not going viral on others with my crazy mental proliferations. And so here's the new practice for today, along, somewhat along these lines. <clears throat> And this is, this, is my, this is my version of, of Tonglen. You know, Tonglen, many of you know, Tibetan practice, really powerful practice, literally sending and taking, where you, in four stages, and maybe if you want, you can ask me this on a question, I can go through this next week. You know, the four classic stages of Tonglen practice, that doesn't take terribly long. So if you want me to do that, I can do that next week. But I, I want to introduce you now to a one-breath Tonglen meditation session. And what this does for me is it not only allows me to connect to my body more like the anti-complaint meditation and the one-breath meditation, but the one-breath Tonglen meditation 
helps me open and connect to my heart. Um, and I find myself, it's, it's super interesting because we're in a Bardo. When I'm in, when I'm in literally in Bardo situations at the side of someone who's dying um, or undergoing really difficult situations, one of my default practices, the one of my go-to practices is in fact Tonglin. It's, it's, it's kind of brutally powerful practice. It's a rugged kind of industrial strength practice that's designed for these really rugged industrial and intensity, intense level situations. And so what Tong Lin is, whenever I hear, you know, I mean, I watch some of this stuff and I'm telling you, it is like, it's heartbreaking. I mean, to see, you, I don't have to feel you when I'm, I'm touching into this. And I feel sometimes it's so much, I can't take it, you know, and I close down. And that's a contraction in itself, the, uh, you know, self-defense. And so to stay open to others, I have to stay open to myself. And so what I do here then is literally I'm the medium of one breath, one breath. On that one breath, I inhale, not just through my lungs, but through every pore of my body. I, I bring in the suffering, the pain, whatever it is that I'm, that I'm witnessing that it just really is, is, I don't want to witness this, it's so painful. But if I shut that pain out, I'm not connecting to others. I'm not connecting to myself. I'm, I'm cutting myself, myself off. And so one breath Tong Lin just supplements the one breath meditation. Every in-breath, I feel something. I see something that just breaks my heart. I breathe in the suffering of every person on this planet that's struggling with COVID. I bring that in. And, and again, I can talk more about this next week if you want, because it, it's not me. I'm not breathing it in. The cosmos is bringing it in, breathing it in. But more maybe on that next week. The idea is I, quote unquote, I bring it in with every pore of my body. And then like a cosmic air conditioner, with the out breath, I radiate out all these qualities of, of the cosmos that are good, curative, healing, loving, kind. And it's, you know, usually when I do this, by the way, I, I almost always find myself really extending the breath because it's hard for me to make that switch very quickly. So when I do this practice, um, it's not hyperventilation because it's just one breath, but it is a deep breath. And here's an interesting interjection. This is the way my mind works. You guys know me, right? Like the infinite parenthetical interjection sidebar thing. That's the way my mind rolls. So studies have shown that depressed people don't breathe deeply. They have a very shallow respiratory um, capacity of function. In fact, I had one patient come, come to me and who was suffering with depression. I'm not a psychiatrist, but I, I, I do kind of help people on the side with this sort of thing. Well, she said something really interesting to me. She said, I have no space inside. I thought that was a really revelatory statement. I have no space inside. What a, what a statement. And so we want to mix our mind with space, mix our mind with love, um, with the open heart. And so let's do this together. One, maybe more extended meditation. Um, you can visualize something that really, you know, in the last 24 hours that you saw, that really is like, oh my God, this is really rough. Some of the stuff is really rough. Bring that into your heart, mind, feel it. Be a warrior. It's not going to hurt you. It's going to open you. Breathe it in completely, take that in and the suffering of everybody on this planet who's hurting from COVID, bring that in. 
Don't hold it at the top of the inhalation, then you exhale, release, open, and transform like a cosmic air conditioner, all this darkness, pain, and suffering into love and light, and you just offer that to the cosmos. So let's try this for one breath, and then we'll open it up for some Q&A. That's it. And of course, the near enemy of this practice is indulgence, the victim mentality, oy vey. Don't go there, don't go there. One breath, inhale, one breath, exhale. And then next week, if you want, again, I'm just winging this. I have, I have like no preparatory notes. Next week where we could take this if you want. I, I had the most beautiful interview yesterday with a philosopher for my nightclub site. Um, Small plug for that, every couple of weeks I interview some pretty amazing people. And I had an interview yesterday, I have to share a little bit about it with Zach Stein. This guy's a hard hitting intellectual, worse, worse, worse than me, so to speak. Smart, smart man. And I, I prepared all these, you know, kind of thick, heavy, metaphysical, epistemological, ontological, soteriological, all these words that just kept me so excited. I had all pre prepared this stuff, you know, like we're going to have a deep philosophical discussion. And he, it was, it turned out to be the most beautiful event. He completely disarmed me with his, his open heart and his humanity. And he shared a really beautiful practice that, that maybe if you want, I'll share it to you next week because it's a, a wonderful follow-up to what we did here. That, and he's a deep, deep Zen practitioner, very savvy student of Buddhism and knows all about the barrios and stuff. And he, he came up with this thing, and I can share more about this Nick, that next week, that he calls crying practice, crying practice. And I have to tell you, it kind of blew me away. I mean, this is like Tom Lin on steroids. I mean, it, it, was, it was so heartfelt because of his personal experiences. And when he shared this thing, I was so taken by it. I said, oh my gosh, I want to share this with people. So I wrote down um, four or five steps, which I'll share with you next week if you want the four or five steps of, of crying practice, um, which I, I, I was just blown away. So that's my riff um, at this point. Um, questions, comments, and the like, you know, mostly what we do here is just chat on things. So the, the floor is open, so to speak. Okay, great. Well, we have some hand raised. So the okay. first, first one is gonna go to uh, Joseph Parent. Joseph! Every time I think of you, Joseph, I start to cry. So this is like the perfect segue. <laughs> That's good. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, you make me cry every time I see you, my friend. That's good. That's good. Joseph is a dear, I have to say, who everybody's listening, a small prog. Joseph is a dear, dear friend of mine. He, he, did, he did the silly three-year retreat before I did it. And he's, this is no kidding. Joseph is one of the world's preeminent golf instructors. I am not kidding. Um, he's written a number of amazing books on golf, including an absolute classic, I think number two on the all-time golf list, right? Zen golf. So anyway, my personal plug to a very dear friend. That's nice to see you, man. You too. Can you see yeah. me at all? I can. 
That's yeah. good. <laughs> well, I, I had a couple of, uh, of thoughts. Um, of course, I really liked the, and we, and we did this uh, when we were in the retreat in, in Sedona, the uh, complaint notion. Yeah, it's my favorite practice. Yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, and the feeling and the notion of the storyline. Uh, we, you and I have talked about that, that these kinds of intense emotions, um, unless you sustain them, they don't last more than 90 seconds. Um, but especially negative emotions are always looking for justification uh, to, for their existence. So they want, they're like calling for more storyline. Right. And, um, and complaints are, are always uh, a sort of negative emotion. But it, it did remind me of uh, a teaching that uh, the Vajra Regent gave. Uh, uh, a woman came to him, uh, and he was famous for these four-line teachings. A woman came to him and said, I, I complain all the time, what should I do? And he said, um, this was actually a, a three-liner, um, don't complain. First line was don't complain. Second was about anything. But the third line was T, not even to yourself. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's the complaint to ourselves that we don't even realize we're getting that's, a storyline going that keeps that contraction and that, that energy. So um, I just wanted to, to realize how, how helpful that was. Uh, last time we talked about Tong Len, and you know, it's a, um, it's a challenging thing. Uh, for some people, because Tonglen is really based on a pre-existing foundation of Hinayana Mahayana egolessness of self and egolessness of phenomena, and you know it's based in Shunyata. Whenever Pema teaches it, she she starts with that one breath, open mind meditation, intended to be that. Right. But for most people, it's kind of hard taking that all that stuff in and not feeling that it pollutes ourselves somewhat. That's right. That's right. Because as long as we have this sense of any self-clinging, it's going to feel that way. So um, I know I've shared this with you, my uh, Walk in the Wood book. Oh, beautiful. Love and, it. And I even refer to it as like an air conditioner. Um, because an air conditioner takes in the hot air and puts out the cool air and doesn't, you know, it doesn't become broken down in just a few, <laughs> a few um, intakes. But what I did that might be, I wanted to offer that might be helpful to people is um, so that you don't feel like you yourself as some kind of corporal entity uh, is, is that all this stuff is landing on you and the, the virus and the pollution, you know, in the world and everything is to create and um, uh, imagine in your heart center a, uh, a beautiful crystal made of light mm. and in whatever shape you want. And it's this crystal that's your meta, you know, uh, metaphysical or spiritual air conditioner. Right. That that is what you're breathing it into. Um, and because it's really important that as you breathe out, you start by radiating out that kindness to yourself and feel yourself, you know, um, be kind to yourself first, and then it radiates beyond you 
out to all beings. And, and so that way, um, it's not so I'm taking this in personally, but of course that crystal made of light is your Buddha nature. That's right. Which doesn't have a corporal existence. It's not a thing, but we imagine it as that. And then that, that, that's easier, especially for new people. I, I do a lot of introductory meditation classes. And so that's really helpful, especially for newer people who don't have a long experience with practice or, or haven't gotten into some of the Mahayana Shunyata teachings. So yeah. I just want to... Oh, Joseph, as usual, beautiful contribution, my friend. And so a couple of things come to mind. At the outset, you said something really interesting that, you know, how it is that we tend to glom on to the negative. I, I refer to these playfully again. I, I'm a big fan of words. Somebody once told me that I'm a Gemini. My birthday, by the way, is May 28th. Both and, of you are a Gemini? Hint. Yeah. What? Yeah, both of us. Yeah. yeah all, th all three of us. Me, myself, and I. So allegedly Gemini's like wordplay. I guess I do. And so I come up with all these new words, neologisms, they're called. And, and so these negativities are think think holes, they're think holes. They're even worse than the black hole. And, and everything just kind of, you know, gets sucked into this black, dark think hole. And what's very interesting, and this, this conjoins with some interesting neuroscience that, that, again, studies have shown, that it takes, this is really interesting, how it is that ego, in a very real way, it's super interesting, something bad is better than nothing. Um, and ego actually gorges on the negative. Um, and so studies have actually shown that it takes up to five, and I'm not sure if it's up to or at least, that, that escapes me, but it takes five positive events to override the effects of one negative event. That is a very interesting and humbling, embarrassing statement about how we live our lives. And so this idea of not just complaining to others, but great comment, Joseph, about don't complain to yourself. That's fantastic. And, and again, our teacher, the master of the one-liner, Vijayadar Trungpa Bache, right? What did he say? Elegance is life lived without complaint. I mean, that's an amazing, I mean, I, what a statement. Elegance is life lived without complaint. And so the other thing that's really helpful, again, I have to put an exclamation on this joke because what you said is just so spot on. Which is like, you know, when I'm doing this a little bit more kind of uh, rigorously, I always introduce the four stages of uh, Tonglen first, but this is an emergency situation. So I'm throwing out emergency practices with a little bit of risk, not huge risk. But what you said is spot on and is worth stating. The first of the four stages is in fact this flashing open. You fake it. You don't really know until you have experienced it. You're just Opening, opening, interesting. Opening to me is, is, a, is a synonym for emptiness. Openness is affective or felt emptiness. So you fake it, you open. And, and so by doing that, um, then it is not like I tried to mention briefly, it's not you that's inhaling this. You know, you're gone. Obviously that doesn't happen until you go through, like you said, the Hinayana and the Mahayana where these teachings on emptiness and then, you know, um, Tonglin in a certain way, like love is applied emptiness. It's applied emptiness. And so um, I just wanted to throw an exclamation point into that, that to really do Tonglin properly, 
without burning out, without taking it in on yourself, which of course, without these teachings, that's just what we do. We don't realize we have an option. So to really do these, these practices properly, and parenthetically, I have to interject this. In order to do any Mahayana or Vajrayana practice properly, you have to start from this. As you know, this is called the Samadhi of Suchness. All the practices start with this flash. And so maybe we can come back to that next week and unpack it if more of you want to hear about that. But as you know, Joseph, what we're trying to do, and I'm sure you're resonant with this, is, is create skillful means that are correlative to the emergency situation that we're in. And I find these on the spot, immediate practices to be uh, an absolute lifesaver at this point. But thanks for the contribution, my friend, as usual. You always have, you stop my crying. Now you, now you make me want to laugh. <laughs> well, you know, the, um, what you said about attention, and that, that's uh, developmental studies with kids have shown for, for you know, a long time that uh, they seek that negative attention is better than no attention. Exactly right, yeah. So <laughs> negative attention towards ourselves. And um, a, a, that goes along with the one-liner about complaint is Naropa's one-liner that um, the source of samsara is the tendency to blame others. Yeah, beautiful. And, and that kind of goes with complaint because what are you complaining about? You're complaining about what, what you're not getting from others or what they're doing or any of that. And, and the last thing I wanted to offer was the, um, that in that one breath meditation and the, the contrast between contraction and that, that, that it reminded me of a ground Mahamudra mm. practice, which is essentially in t that you intentionally contract. Yeah. And, and, and this is it for people who are, are working with this, um, they might not, not really be ready for the one breath meditation because they're still spinning about stuff. Yeah. But instead of just trying to override that with the one breath, you can intensify it and yeah. feel all the contraction and contract more and get tighter and tighter and tighter and then whoosh and out with that one breath further, further, further until there's no limit. So I wanted to offer that as well. Really beautiful. And, and, and for, those, you know, for those of you who are listening, who are taking the 10-week class I'm doing, again, I have to plug my stuff whenever I can, right? Um, in the latter parts of this course, we're going to be doing exactly these types of practices. They're called reverse meditations from the Mahamudra tradition, where we actually, we actually amp up the, uh, the duress, the stress, the noise, the pain. We actually intentionally, on our terms, as a way to establish a relationship to it, we work with it on our terms with these really powerful practices that are super big deal in the Bardo literature called reverse meditation. So we'll be coming back. In fact, we could, if, if our little talk show here continues, I can eventually introduce you to some of these as well because these are a, a set of batteries, a, a battery of practices lesser known because they're so quirky that when, when it comes to end of life, old age, sickness and death, these are phenomenally powerful preparatory practices, um, key practice practices for the Bardo. So we'll come back and play with that. But in the meantime, my friend, thank you for joining us. Always great to see you. Ciao. Terrific. Okay, anybody else? I, I, I went with that a little bit longer because Joe's just such a great resource here. But anybody else? Questions, comments? Yeah. Um, next question is coming from Candy Hirsch. And Candy, you have the audio. Hi, Andrew. 
Hi, Candy. <clears throat> How are you? Good. Can you see me? I can. I'm trying to read all the books. I love it when bookshelves come up. <laughs> because then I do a little psychological assessment, you know, like what, so what's the I'm, stuff? I'm here in Tucson. I'm a therapist and I've done a lot of studying, but I kind of fell out with a teacher about uh, six, seven years ago and haven't really gotten back involved So until a couple of weeks ago. So I want to thank you, first of all, for all of these teachings. It's coming just so at the right time. Um, so I am in your Tuesday class okay. and I uh, had a, and I figured this is, it all started coming up this weekend. I had a big disturbance this weekend okay. and I was uh, really attempting to, pre I've been doing Tonglen, I, I know how to do it for other people. Yeah. I was not able to clear my own like big anger that showed up for me. Um, and I tried to, so how do you organize yourself to do Tonglen on yourself is my question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. And it ties in a little bit um, to what I was just briefly pinging on with Joseph. Um, that, you know, it, it, Tonglen for yourself is absolutely, utterly appropriate. Um, and I'll just throw a couple things out and see if it, it sticks for you, and if not, direct me in, in the direction where you want to take this. A great deal of this, um, Candace, right? It comes candy. Into, candy, yeah, comes into play where, you know, we just started talking about this, just barely started to talk about it in the last Tuesday class, which we're now going to go into in, in quite a bit more depth. Understanding this, this perennial, deep philosophical question the answer to which really is, is you could argue, is, is the essence of what we call enlightenment, which is who am I? Um, really the, the constitutive practice of Ramana Maharshi, I mean, it's a central contemplative practice in many of the great wisdom traditions. And so your question harks very deeply to that because understanding who we really are and then tying this in a little bit to what Joseph was talking about, is that sometimes when we make these transitions towards me, things can become a little bit interesting, sticky, tricky, because we, we have, almost by definition, because we're not enlightened, <laughs> we have this wild case of mistaken identity, this completely erroneous, fallacious sense of who we think we are. And so that's why this practice, and Joseph pointed this out, what, this practice that is somewhat you see what, you know, it's, it's rugged, it's brutal, and it's, and it's, and it's um, kind of pared down simplicity. But what is belied behind the simplicity of Tong Lin is a very profound infrastructure of understanding. Um, and that, of course, is, are these, these bottom line teachings on emptiness. And so when I started talking just this week, Candy, on, on the spectrum of identity, I was talking, again, spectrums of identity lie along two axes, right? A horizontal and a vertical. Um, and understanding these two, by the way, is hugely important. Um, not being able to differentiate these two is why we have tragedies with these scandals and all the crazy sex stuff that happens with these so-called enlightened teachers. Well, they may have woken up, but they're not grown up. That's a different thing, but this is a big deal topic. It's one reason, I'm telling you, there's one reason why there's, there, all this stuff just keeps happening. 
because they're, they're not necessarily the same thing. Vertical and horizontal enlightenment are not the same thing. And you can be pretty awake in one dimension and a total retard in the other. And just open your eyes to see how true is that. But I want to throw this into the mix and maybe let it go for now, because if you're in the class, this is where we're going. We're, we're going to, we, um, you know, me and my wisdom friends, <laughs> are going to try to create or portray a map, a more complete map of the, of the full spectrum of identity along both axes. So that in fact, when we do these types of practices armed with this infrastructure of understanding, all of a sudden it's like, now I get it. Now I know how I have to do this. Now I know why I need to, to kind of retrofit these teachings to really make these practices go into play. And so because you're taking the class with your kind permission, I'm going to defer the essence of your question to the class because I'm going to go right after this um, over the next three, four sessions. So is that okay if I do that? Sure. Cool. Yeah. And I just really appreciate connecting with you and I really appreciate what, who you like, are yeah. right now. Yeah. I have to say, like I mentioned every time, I, I love this stuff. I mean, to me, this is the, this is the essence of Sangha community. And uh, I, I love doing this kind of thing, much more than listening to myself you know, flap my lips. So thank you so much for your great question and for participating. And what I heard you say that I'm going to take with me through this week till I see you on Tuesday is to, if I get triggered again, to ask myself who, who is yes. the I. Exactly. Exactly. Good for you. You want to do, this is an investigation, you know, are you a student of the Buddhist tradition? Yes. Are you, yeah. So this is, this is a Mahamudra investigation where you, you can ask yourself in a really sincere way, who is feeling this? And then go there. Where does that take you? And that, that invitation, notice first of all how it's gonna turn your mind within. That's the first thing. Turns the mind in the right direction. And then answering this question will, will, can lead you to some profound truths. And I'm not gonna, you know, spoiler alert here, I'm not gonna tell you what those truths are just yet because they have so much more power if you do the investigation and you find out for yourself. And then when someone like me or somebody else comes in and talks about what it was, you'll go, bingo, that is exactly what I experienced. And that, that's where the real power comes from. You empower yourself. That's why this is a non-theistic tradition. You empower yourself with your own um, good heart, your own intelligence and your own investigative, like a good reporter, your own investigative uh, capacities then you'll never forget what you see okay thank you cool great okay andy anybody else oh yeah um next question is from maggie so maggie you have the audio to ask your question thank you um i first of all i want to thank you for um i encountered you on the tricycle um a presentation a couple weeks ago and then i'm taking your, the first bardo course i didn't realize you were giving a second one right now. So yeah. the, the taped one. Um, and I thank you for providing this wonderful intellectual companionship during this time. Um, uh, I spent my 20s studying philosophy, Western philosophy, and I've been meditating for several years, but this is an opportunity for me to sort of get to understand the, the fundamental teachings of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, uh, um, I'm perplexed, and maybe this is not the right form, but I'm perplexed by 
the idea of karma because if in fact the cosmos is empty um, and deontologized, um, yep. I, I love the idea that there's poetic justice out there sometime, but um, uh, but uh, I don't understand who judges, yeah. um, uh, what judges, what why there should even be a judgment in this system. So yeah, yeah. well, there isn't one, right? Uh, great question. Um, and I'm a huge fan, by the way, of continental philosophy as well. You know, in, in the next class. See, I'm putting out all these, I'm putting out all these, these trailers for my next class. Yeah. I'm actually going to be bringing in Heidegger, Wittgenstein, um, Derrida. I mean, as you know, wherever you find truth, you find the Dharma. And, and there's so much truth in, in the New England transcendentalists and the continental philosophers. I mean, it's, it's stunning to me. And so I'm going to be pinging in on, on some Western intellectual so-called theory to really augment our understanding of, of these so-called Eastern ideals. But the idea here is, this is the Buddhist tradition, among many others, is a non-theistic tradition. Right. And so there is no judge. There is no, um, these issues are what are called theodicy, as you know, in the philosophical language. Uh, you know, issues of kind of cosmic jurisprudence, not jurisprudence, but just um, um, accountability. And, and so, this ties in beautifully to why it's so critically important to understand emptiness. Emptiness in Buddhism is everything. And it's, a, it's beautiful irony because emptiness itself is nothing, right? It's fantastic. It's just like so Zen-like. <laughs> but everything in the Buddhist tradition, and that includes the bardos, and I mean everything, emptiness. And so without a deep understanding of, of emptiness, this is what the Buddha discovered under the Bodhi tree 2,600 years ago. He did not discover mindfulness. He, he developed that. He, he basically plagiarized that from the developing Brahmanical tradition. He discovered, so to speak, the Pashana. He discovered these analytic meditations that led to the truth. Mindfulness, shamatha, will not liberate you, which is why I have to throw this into the mix. Sooner or later, this mindfulness revolution is going to bottom out. Because as, as powerful as it is, it's just a pacifier. It's just a sedative. It will not get you enlightened. It will just make your mind tranquil enough where you can start to see it. Shamatha will not liberate. Mindfulness will not liberate. It pacifies. Vipassana liberates. And so if you, if you do what the Buddha did underneath the Bodhi tree, what constituted his awakening was discovering this thing, this no thing called enlightenment. I mean, I'm sorry, emptiness. If you understand that, which again, if we all understood it, we'd be enlightened. These questions would, they would just completely take care of themselves. Because in fact, the questions themselves are revelatory. They're diagnostic of our levels of misidentification with ontology and false levels of being. And so even the, even the way we ask our questions, usually they're misguided. And that in itself is, is okay. But they're also revelatory uh, if they're pointed out as such in terms of what we, we have as axioms, what we believe truly exists. And so what we have to do to really understand these things is we, we and this is not wordplay, we literally have to change the way we think. Um, and that's not an easy, easy thing to do because whether we know it or not, we all thing think. I mean, that's just a given. We all think in terms of things reality does not operate in terms of things. And so if, if we don't investigate this, you know, we see the world the way we think about the world, 
we think about the world the way we see the world. So it's this insidious bootstrapping mechanism that collectively takes us and the world down. And uh, it, it's great, there's a great line from Brian, Brian Josephson, a Nobel laureate physicist, where he said this great. He says, uh, uh, we think that we think clearly, but that's only because we don't think clearly. <laughs> that's like beautiful. So the reason that I'm saying all this, like what is, he, what is he really talking about here? These are really deep questions. I mean, you know, you're a student of philosophy, you know, these are, these are gut deep questions. And so not so easy to take such a deep question and give you a shrink wrap bullet point answer. Um, to really answer that question, you need to understand these foundational tenets of emptiness. Then when that, when, when that is understood, as you're intimating, you, you, you use the phraseology deontologized, everything becomes de-reified. Um, and then from that de-reified perspective, then everything you're asking about just becomes utterly apparent and obvious. And so um, in the course that you're, I'm trying to remember what I did for that course, but in that course, I do a couple, uh, an introduction to this kind of thing for sure. Um, and the one I'm doing now, which is twice as long, we, get, we go into it in much more depth. But I think you will get a lot of, did you get to the emptiness section in that course yet? I'm, I'm just about to enter it. So there you go. You're entering into the emptiness zone. So dive into that and then come back next week and see if that helps you. Okay. Because this is where we need to go. Um, from that, then you're going to go, I get it. I get it. Because otherwise, karma doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's like, what is that about? Yeah. Um, and so... The very last thing I'll say, and then I'll let it go for now. We also need to make this very important distinction between absolute and relative truth. Karma operates at the level of relative truth, and we can't deny it. It's basically the laws of habit, the laws of causality. Um, and this is where all our science, basically the way we look at the world, our philosophy, everything is derived from that. When you start talking about emptiness, you acknowledge relative truth, but you go much deeper, you transcend, but include it in Hegelian terms, since you like philosophy, where you're, now you're talking about absolute level truths. And absolute level truths are the great contribution of the great contemplative traditions, because they're not limited by the restrictions of, of thinking. They're, they're um, trans-conceptual, they're, they're trans-spatial, tr they're trans-temporal. And this is why at the very deepest level, philosophy will not take you here. Yeah, philosophy bottoms out. Philosophy only applies in a world that's already been fractured into self and other. In fact, it's so interesting because most of philosophy is a response that solved the fundamental fracture of duality itself. That's why. So if you if you don't fracture duality, you don't need philosophy. I mean, I, that's why I'm not a philosopher anymore. <laughs> so philosophy only takes you so far. I love it. I love to think. I mean, what a surprise. I love. I mean, I got. 4,000 books here. So I love to think, but eventually you have to burn your books. I mean, eventually you have to just let all that go. The only way you will get this stuff is when you transcend thought itself. And that's where you meditate. You, you have to um, grok this stuff in a non-conceptual meditative way. Otherwise you will literally never get it. And this is why most philosophers, I hate to say it, with the exception of really sensitive people like Schopenhauer and Heidegger, clueless, because they didn't do the praxis. They, they didn't have the satori that said, OMG, this is what it's all about. So I, I think something like that, maybe.
read the work of David Loy. Um, I don't you know if you've explored his work. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, he's a pretty clever guy. He writes a lot about this kind of stuff. Thank you. David Loy. Yeah. So read the emptiness thing and let me know if that helps or not, okay? Thank you. Or, or stay listen to it. Thank you. Okay. Great. Um, next question is coming from Timothy Clark. And Timothy, hey, you have the audio. All right. Hi, Andrew. Yeah. Um, I've been uh, watching you, taking your classes for over a year now. <laughs> nice. Padmasambhava Padma is still behind you. Yeah, yeah. That's Padmasambhava behind me. Yeah. <laughs> I have him hanging around here somewhere, too. Anyway, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So anyway, last night, uh, I happened to watch uh, Michael Moore's new uh, documentary, or he, I guess he uh, produced it, uh, called uh, Planet of the Humans. And it, like put the final nail in the coffin of hope. You know, to me, I, I realized that I still had this sort of glimmer of hope that uh, mankind is going to be able to, we're gonna come through this thing, you know, and uh, you know, alternative energy, all these things. He, they just uh, totally uh, annihilated that whole idea. And so, it doesn't, I mean, I can't say it really bothers me. I mean, hopelessness, uh, I guess my question has to do with where, how do you feel about, can you say something about hope? Yeah. I know it's connected with fear, yeah. but if you, you know, if you just abandon hope, you go, okay, this is the way it is. Uh, there's no way out of this where we're going. Uh, you know, this is it. Uh, and I personally, I guess I still, I have some hope because I realize, you know, the death isn't the end. So I still have I still have hope, you know, uh, Copper Mountain Paradise, or you know, so I still hang on to those kind of things. But uh, most of my friends, you know, if I say something about you know, there's no hope, they you know, it's very depressing. Yeah. And, uh, so just yeah, to, yeah, sorry. yeah. A couple of things. First of all, great comments, Tim. Thank you. A couple of things immediately come to mind. Um, don't give up hope. Give up hope for samsara. Don't give up hope. Give up hope for samsara. And we're seeing, and this is what I started having this conversation with Zach Stein yesterday, this beautiful philosopher, um, who basically, again, you know, if we pay very close attention to what's happening here, without getting a little bit too anthropocentric or, or anthropomorphic, is we're seeing in, in painful, exquisite detail the limitations of the samsaric agenda, our violation of our rightful place in the cosmos, the fact that we are embedded in the ecological animal kingdom, that we are animals, and that the fact that we got this virus from an animal, from a sister, a brother of, of the sentient condition, is really a profound kind of um, pointing out for me. So there is a place for hope, but it's transcendent hope. It's, it's like a prajnaparamita hope where you, you, you give up hope on, for samsara. I bet that's, if you really look underneath the hood of what Michael Moore is talking about, give up hope for samsara. Pardon my French, this three ring shit show is not going to work because it's based on a, on a pack of lies. Samsara is a foundational pack of lies. Um, it's, it's built on foundational fake news or mistruths that go to the deepest levels, ontological, epistemological, you name it. This is built on a house of cards. It is going to fall apart. It has to. That's what's happening here. This is reality concentrate. 
it's being revealed. And so if we don't see it as that, and we just try to patch Humpty Dumpty back together again, well, guess what's gonna happen? It's just gonna keep going, and it's just gonna get worse. The alarm clock's just gonna get louder. So the, the key is not to give up hope, give up hope for samsara. The nature of mind, and this again, I'm not criticizing Michael Moore, I'm not criticizing all these philosophers, that's not my place. But these, are, these conclusions are based on a certain type of myopia, nearsightedness, where their gaze is too low, where they're not raising it up into a larger perspective. And so this is where, again, ties into the earlier question. We have to transition from um, the harsh truths of, of relative reality to the noble truths of absolute reality. And then from that perspective, the fundamental proclamations that inform this view that I take refuge in, and this is why I'm not giving up hope. I'm giving up hope for samsara. I'm not giving up hope for, for the universe. Because fundamentally, the nature of the cosmos, the nature of your heart, the nature of your mind, the nature of the entire phenomenal world is, is good. It's goodness, basic goodness, Trumpist terms. Essence love in Sogyan Rinpoche's terms, perfect purity in Dzogchen terms. The world is made of the spirit of heart, mind, love. And from that, there, that, to me, inspires me because I will never give up hope because that is, that is reality. This other thing is just a vast misinterpretation of that. And by the way, parenthetically, this is something, this is why I'm writing this book on contraction. That's the only thing that ever is. There is only forever, always nirvana. That's the only thing there is ever. Right now is nirvana, that's it. Samsara is just not seeing nirvana. It's just not seeing that that's what's there. There is only nirvana. Samsara doesn't exist. Samsara is a funny way of looking at nirvana, right? This is, this is, these are the great teachings of the non-dual tradition. And so you take this, you give up hope for samsara. What do we call that? Nyejung. That's renunciation. And then you, miss, you shift your strategies towards aligning with truth, with reality. That's the dharma. And then from there, you're, you're, you never give up hope. One last comment, and then I'll come up for air. Hope, as you know, conjoined with fear, these are the parents of the eight worldly dharmas. Hope and fear give birth to the eight worldly dharmas. Praise and blame, loss and fame, gain and shame, pray, whatever, they, whatever the last two are. Everything that we do in the relative world is progeny of hope and fear. We avoid one and we clamor for the other. And what, uh, on one level, we want to do is relate to total equanimity to whatever arises, transcend hope and fear, transcend the parents of samsara. Um, and so, you know, something like that, my friend? Does that land a little bit? Yeah, that gives me more food for thought. <laughs> Perfect, yeah. Come back, I always like to see Padmasambhava. You, you always jog my memory, so. All right. <laughs> Take care. Great. Uh, the next question is coming from Katie. Katie, you have the audio. Thank you, Andy. Katie, I'm going to ask you to do one thing with me, right? Yeah. I, you can probably tell I get a little speedy, a little windy. That's just what happens. So let's yeah. pause. Yeah. It's very interesting. I start to see myself getting contracted because I get so excited. One, <laughs> breath, one breath meditation. There we go, session over. <laughs>
Thank you. It helps me stay a little bit grounded. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I love this quote that you offered in the beginning about transforming flashes of illumination into abiding light. Mm -hmm. And it really puts words to what I've been contemplating lately. And um, what I'm curious about are, are two things. So uh, I feel quite comfortable with my nighttime practices and going into uh, doing dream and sleep yoga using those practices. Cool. Uh, my daytime practices, I'm kind of still refining, especially about how to access uh, formlessness in the daytime practices. That's definitely more challenging for me. So I'm curious about that. And, and then I'm also curious about like when, when we go to these formless places and then come back up from them, how do we extend that experience now that we're in a form? Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, you ask the best questions. That's awesome, my friend Katie, so thank you. Well, you know, it's interesting, even in, in, in these last four or five questions, they're, they're indicative of this central axis point of, of the Buddhist tradition altogether, because this is another question that deals with emptiness, right? So formlessness is, is yet another way to talk about emptiness. And understanding that without falling into all these subtle spiritual traps, you know, like spiritual bypassing, that's where you, you know, there, there are near enemies to every noble quality or teaching and, and uh, many near enemies to the formless practices, the emptiness practices. One is this kind of dismissive relationship, um, this spaciness, this you know, inability to relate to relative reality, which is exactly your question here. And so what we do with these practices, and there's so many ways to frame this, but in the context of one of the directions I'm taking in the 10 week Boulder class, <clears throat> one of the best ways to talk about this, and there's so many ways, is to talk about it within the spectrum of our identity, um, because I want to make it a little bit more immediate, that these formless qualities, are you a student of the Buddhist tradition, Katie? Do you know a little bit about Buddhism? I know a little, um, mostly sleep and dream yoga. Okay, cool. No problem. Yeah. Well, at the very, at the very core of our being, like, like right here, right now, not rhetoric, not hyperbole, it's just really just maybe hidden. The very core of our being is, is fundamentally, in fact, this formless dimension. It's fundamentally who we are, which of course is we aren't, right? <laughs> we aren't. Mm -hmm. But that, that is just part of our identity. That's just part of our identity. That's the formless dimension. That's where we go when we die. That's where we go in deep, dreamless sleep. That's where we go in deep, deep, formless meditation. And once you become stabilized, familiar with this meditation, that's not only where you go, that's where you stay. In other words, you never leave that perspective. So, okay, well, that sounds great. Well, how does it relate to the world and the rest of my body and, and this? Well, it relates intimately because what we do on, on, the, press, on the, uh, the path is it's a twofold kind of arc, a trajectory. Um, you can say ascending or descending, it doesn't really matter, but for the purposes, well, let's just say for descent, since we're using this metaphor of going into your body, it's, it's arbitrary. You wake down through the, the process of the spiritual path and the practices nocturnal or diurnal, letting go, differentiating from dying to false levels of identification. 
So it's like I was saying earlier, we have this wild, crazy um, case of mistaken identity where we think it's not toys are us, it's forms are us. I'm my body, I'm my thinking, if that's more subtle, I'm, I'm form. Well, that's part of you, but it's not all of you. And if you think that's part of you, though I should say, if you think that's all of you, you're living at a very, you, all of us, living at a very superficial, um, outermost level of dimension of our being. And you will suffer in direct correspondence, proportionality to that level of identification. This is important to throw into the mix because this is what the virus is attacking. It won't attack this other part of you. This is what's attacking the, the, the part of you that you really, we need to be concerned with. This is why you wash your hands. This is why you take vaccines. And this is where fear is in order. But what we do on the spiritual path is we let go die too, which is why the spiritual path is death in slow motion. You transition from this exclusive identification with form, which is really what ego is. That's what ego is. Exclusive identification with form. You transition, you let go die to these material domains, transition your identity to the spiritual domains. And then as, as you work your way in, what you do, and this is super important, what you do kind of in, in, the, in relation to the earlier question, you transcend those dimensions, but you include them. The usual process on the spiritual path is transcend but exclude. Because we associate suffering with the world of form, usually, well, getting rid of suffering means getting, getting rid of form. You know, and this is where the, the, the side elements of asceticism and all these kind of subtle spiritual pathologies come into play. So long-winded way of saying, it happens at sleep, since you have a connection to that, you come back to the very core of your being, but then you don't stay there. If you stay there, that's a really deep spiritual path, a trap. Vishnu complex, um, Arhat trap, there's a ton of different names for this, where you don't transcend but include, you transcend but exclude. And that, that does nobody good. It may, it may do you a little bit of good, but how, that's, a, that's an anemic, ineffectual enlightenment. It's a partial enlightenment. Now you've just gone from one extreme to the next. Instead of identifying with form, now you just identify with your spiritual dimensions. And you don't pay your bills and you smoke pot or you know the hippie thing. That's the side element of that. So then what you do is then here's the second path. Then you pull this wicked ass U-turn. And I love the double entendre. Again, I, I'm a Gemini. It's not just you, it's Y-O-U turn, right? So then you do this U-turn and you come back into the world of form. You come back into your thoughts. You come back into your body. You come back into this. But guess what? Everything you do is now perfumed with this awakened quality. And mm -hmm. so therefore, you no, you no longer, and this is the kicker, you no longer only identify formlessness and emptiness with this initially provisional state. Now you recognize it in everything. And it, you know, since you're a student of the nocturnal practices, the book that's coming out in August this year, the really deep dive book, is exactly on this topic. Yeah. Come back into the world of form, voluntarily take rebirth, reincarnate, voluntarily, driven by wisdom and not ignorance, driven by compassion. And therefore you realize that you only, it's a little bit like the earlier question, you realize that this thing called formlessness, which is virtually synonymous with nirvana, in a very real level, that's all that exists. We just don't see it that way, see? So if you open your eyes properly, what you're looking at right in front of you is formless right now. 
we just don't see it. We're not lucid to it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and what I'm curious about is those moments of overlap, like where you are still perfumed with that experience of formlessness from the nighttime practice or from meditation or however you access it, how to prolong that? Or is it just about continuously frequently going back to formlessness in order to prolong it? It's, you do both. It's, it's literally called the path of familiarity. So, you know, there are five stages. They're called five paths, but they're not five paths. There are yeah. five stages on the path to awakening. Uh, the most important stage or path is the third path. It's called the path of seeing. That's, that's the transform flashes illumination. That's the flash. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you transform flashes of illumination to abiding light? Well, in our language, you take the path of seeing, that's the flash, transforming that into abiding light, that's the fourth path. That's literally called the path of familiarity or mm-hmm. meditation. You become more and more familiar with that. Tatvam asi, thou art that. The fifth path is called the path of no more learning or Buddhahood. It's really no longer a path, you're done. And so you do exactly what you said. You come back, you remember, there it is. There it is. There it is. There it is. And all of a sudden, hey, there it is more often. You're more and more familiar with that. You're mm-hmm. more lucid to that. Why? Because you're practicing it, becoming more familiar with it. Does that make sense? That, that's the, that's the constitutes the whole path. Yeah. You, the light just stays on more and more and more until you realize, oh my gosh, the light was never turned off. Mm-hmm. It's like, like my friend Chris Wallace says, there is one of my favorite quotes of the year, you know, there is no darkness within or without. There's only light unseen. So it's always there. We just were looking in the wrong directions and it's, it's hiding in plain sight. It's so obvious we don't see it. But that's a different um, topic. I probably don't want to go there, but something like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And then did you, did you mention a specific daytime practice for formlessness? Well, you know, in my business, so to speak, um, the non-dual practices, right? So in the Buddhist tradition, this would be Mahamudra. Mahamudra. Dzogchen, D-Z-O-C-H-E-N. Okay. Um, If you're a lawyerly type, you know, intellectual, Madhyamaka, uh, there's a bunch. Um, Depending on the tradition, you know, most wisdom traditions have variations of formless practices. In, In Buddhism, it literally... Some scholars have estimated the formless practices actually constitute a third of all Vajrayana practice. If you look at Buddhism altogether, it constitutes every part of, of Buddhist practice. It's really subsuming the whole thing. Okay. Thank you so much. Great questions. Yeah, great questions, Katie. Thank you. Okay, we got a few more minutes. Great. Um, next question is coming from Jill. And Jill, you have the audio. This is something I've just been toying with for a while, and I don't know whether it has relationship to what we're going through right now. I guess it would be a bardo. Um, you talked, you had an interview with someone on either the liminal or subliminal states. Remember oh, that? Jennifer, yeah, Jennifer Dumpere on liminal okay, dreaming. Okay. Yeah. So I started using them on purpose in the night because I'm getting older, my sleep's a little bit more mellow than it used to be. I have a little bit more time to pay attention at night. And this might be helpful for people who are not 
uh, who are not sleeping well during this crisis. But at, at any rate, so I, I'm meditating more in the night, meditating a lot more. This has really helped my meditation practice. But I'm now toying with the idea of what exactly is the relationship or the difference between those spaces between dreams, might be deep sleep, might not be deep sleep, empty spaces, and those spaces between thoughts during the day. A great question. Meditating and not sleeping. Yeah. Very yeah. similar. I'm sorry. They seem very similar. They, 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 they can truly be similar because here's one way to play with this, Jill, is, you know, I, there's this saying, my, my saying, that uh, thoughts are to waking consciousness as dreams are to dreaming consciousness. And so therefore the, the play of thinking has a tremendous correlation to the play of dreaming. And so the same way a thought dissolves into, arises and then dissolves into a space in exactly the same way a dream arises and dissolves into that space in exactly the same way a life arises and dissolves from that space in exactly the same way a cosmos arises and dissolves from that space, literally called the theory of recapitulation. And so what's actually taking place between those thoughts, in other words, that gap, that bardell, now this is where it gets really interesting and a little bit subtle because there are different dimensions of that space. The kind of bottomless dimension where everything comes from and arises, as you know, because you're a student of these traditions, of course, is, is you know, Mahamudra, Rigpa, whatever you want to call it, you know, the nature of mind and reality. But not always, right? In other words, there are gradations of um, this dissolution process. And so because you're a student of Buddhism, you know that um, above that foundational kind of groundless ground are, great, are, are progressive gradations of, of manifestation, of birthing process, processes. And so technically speaking, mm -hmm. since you relate to this stuff, this is the difference between Alia Jnana and Alia Vijnana eighth consciousness and so-called ninth consciousness. And so I'm not sure how deeply you want to go into that, but fundamentally what you're talking about is absolutely the case. Um, and therefore in relation to Katie's question earlier, she, I think she, Katie asked this question last week. Yeah. yeah. Another way to work with dropping in to the deep dreamless state from the dream state is exactly the same thing you can do with this correlative practice during the day, which is if you're in a lucid dream, and I did not mention this last week, and you have a really powerful lucidity, the practice is to actually follow the, the, the dream image as it dissolves, like a ray of the sun take, returning back to the sun. It will take you to that source. Um, and so it's a very subtle but very powerful way to use lucid dreaming to bring about lucid sleep. You actually watch a dream image, you release it, and you watch that dream image dissolve into the formless dimension, you follow it in like a ray coming back to the sun, that will take you there. In exactly the same way, again, ties in beautifully to Katie's question, this is what you can do during the day. Very sensitive relationship to the play of your mind, the thought arises, and at first you're thinking like, man, like what is he talking about? There's just no way. Well, perhaps that's because the mind is still a little bit too fast, too speedy, exactly what we talked about in, in this week's class for those of you who took it. The speed of the mind is astounding and we just gloss over it. 
But what you do during the day, what your question is suggesting, Jill, and what Katie was alluding to, is you could watch a thought during the day. I do this a lot. And instead of having a thought seduce you back out and throw you into the world of form, you let that thought dissolve and you follow that thought back in. And that thought will take you to exactly the same space, same space during the day that a dissolved dream will take you into dreamless, formless sleep yoga at night. Kind of cool. Yeah, that's nice. I'll mess with that. Thank you very much. Mess with, mess with it. Yeah, mess with it. Let me know what kind of a mess you make, okay? <laughs> Take care, dear. Always so nice to see you. Thanks for a good question. Okay, okay. more? Yeah, um, next up is uh, Ted Reed. Ted, you have the Ted, audio. Your friend Ted from Rifle, Colorado. You bet. Hi, Andrew. Oh, wait, who you got up there, bud? Oh, I see. Wait, wait a second here. Baba Chakra. Padmasambhava. Uh, the wheel. Oh, no, wait, wait. Who is that over there? It's red. I can't see. Can I see? Manjushri. Who? Manjushri. Manjushri. Oh, better. Yeah, I got my version up here. Do you see him? Right, right. You see him up there? I do. I yeah. do. I do. He's my friend. Um, a question has arisen from some research that I've done. Um, years ago, someone I told me that there was a Chinese character that was identical for crisis and opportunity. That's absolutely correct. And so I did some Googling and that there is no such symbol. Oh, really? So I was yeah. misinformed as well. There, there is no symbol to do that, but I've chosen to... Sure about that, really? Yeah. yeah. I got misinformation. Somebody told me wrong as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was probably the same person. <laughs> we have to blame somebody. Um, and so, but I, I, I've chosen to take this crisis that we're in as an opportunity. Um, you know, as you know, I've been retired for, oh gosh, 14 years now. Uh, so there's not a huge difference in my lifestyle. Um, but what I've done with my time is looking at my practice. And the last three-month retreat I did, my teacher came um, to my little cabin and gave me five minutes of instructions and then disappeared for two weeks, and I was to practice that. And what I'm finding in this crisis-slash-opportunity is an arising of a, de a desire for more and more teachings. Nice. You know, in other words, I, I want more teachings, but then I look at it and is that, is that my ego or is that wisdom to not try and get more teachings, but to fine tune the wonderful teachings that I've been exposed to? And, and I, <laughs> you know, because in, in many ways, my practice is getting simpler and simpler and simpler as I am. Um, and so my question is, how does one determine whether that's the ego saying enough is enough um, or it's wisdom um, and fruition of the practices? Yeah, that's a great sort of question, my friend. I mean, 
Whew. You know, it, it's really almost a question you can only answer for yourself. Um, what, one thing before I forget, as you so aptly put forward, you know, the, the more advanced a practice gets, the simpler it gets. Um, and you may find as you go through the yanas, as you have, there's increasingly less and less to say. Have you noticed that? Mm -hmm. When you start in the Hinayana, and again, no disparaging, they got a crap load to say. I mean, of my 4,000 books, three, 500 are on that. Mahayana, they still have a lot to say. The farther you go, the less there is to say. Mm -hmm. Until fundamentally, as Wittgenstein said so beautifully, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must remain silent. Like I said in the class, silence is the language of the Dharma, the language of God. All else is poor translation. So fundamentally, my friend, you're a little bit like me. You know, remember, remember the story of, of Martha, right? Crossing the bridge, the, the river, and his, his jealous ferryman um, dumped um, all his books into the river. And Martha had a, a cardiac attack, right? I think it was Martha. Um, and so centrifuging out that just the fact that you're asking it represents a real a, a subtle, beautiful elegance. And again, this is only a question that you can really answer for yourself, but here, here's one way to look at it. That at one level, yes, you know, we reach the satiation point and it's like, we don't have to take any more seminars. We don't have to read any more books. We basically have to digest, metabolize everything that we've been given because otherwise we're not going to digest and metabolize. We're just going to gorge. This is a subtle form of spiritual materialism. And so at a certain point, even going on a dharmic diet, going into retreat and then just allowing these teachings to, to incorporate, you may very well find that when you come out, you still want to learn. But the subtle thing for you to play with, my friend, and I know you a little bit, maybe this will land with you, is look into your motivation and see, am I now doing this for myself? Or in fact, am I now doing this with the motivation to help others? Mm -hmm. And if you're doing it for the motivation to help others, then, then you do it. Because um, I, I mentioned this on Tuesday night, at the higher boomies, that is in fact the exhortation, the, the, almost the dharmic command is to learn as much as you can for the benefit of others. You're full. This is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Your needs have been fulfilled. So now it's, it's not deficiency needs, it's abundant needs. So you're no longer wanting or needing for yourself. You're no longer taking, you're giving. But sometimes you give in, or, you know, in order to give properly, you learn more. So I think, again, this is why joining East and West is great. You know, abundance uh, needs eventually transcend deficiency needs. And you're, you're probably pretty close to that point. But I, you know, only you or your intimate meditation instructor or teacher can really suss that out. But maybe something like that can be of some benefit. Does that help? Yeah. No, so, yeah. I, mean, I, I just find this, you know, this very strong illusory ego um, and I keep looking at it and saying or, or it says to me all right you've done enough of this stuff just back off um, as opposed to the, you know it's so close you can't see it it's so simple you won't believe it yeah exactly exactly and remember you know a certain way when we start right we replace bad karma with good karma bad habits with good habits and then fundamentally, we replace habit altogether. Um, and so silence becomes increasingly important. 
Um, and uh, yeah, I think something along those lines, my friend, but a very sensitive question. Thank you for making that. Thank you. Yeah, good to see you. Okay, Great. maybe one or two more. I'm gonna, I, I try to kind of close off at 2.30. Do you realize, by the way, that um, that's the most popular time for a dental appointment for, for young children? 2.30, 2.30, sorry. <laughs> That was great. Thanks. Yeah, yeah it looked like really great. Two thirty. Okay. Next question is coming from Anita. Uh, Anita, you have the audio. Thank you. Hello, Andy. Thank you so much, Andrew, for what you're doing. Thank you so much. Welcome. Uh, I I said the last time that um. I seems to be that what I can do for people this time it's. Because many people call me because they are Irish. Anita, you have to speak a little bit slower. You're kind of breaking up on me here, dear. Yes, my connection is there. Now I can hear you. Uh, it happens to be that several people call me and they are very Irish, and I do my best to make them feel better. It, it's a surprise for me. I don't know why they call me. But Last time you said something that I want to tell them because it's so important and I don't remember who said it. You said something <laughs> about a um, um, Buddhist master that says something about not knowing. Can you say it again, please? Oy vey. Not knowing is a practice or something like that, you said. Uh, yeah, I don't remember exactly what I said, Anita. I mean... And, and or it again, was uncertainty, something like that. Yeah, yeah, I wish I, um, do you remember where I said it? Because everything I'm saying these days has been recorded. And if you go back, you can probably suss that out. Mm -hmm. I mean. Um, I don't know, I don't know because I don't find all the, in the internet, all these recordings, but I look for it. Yeah, yeah, because. It was uh, yeah. perfect. Because people are very unwished because they don't know what is gonna happen. And I. Right. And I just told them, not knowing is a practice, but I don't remember, you, you said yeah. something. Well, you know, here's, here's what comes to mind for today, is that um, the search for ground is, again, itself somewhat, and maybe this, I'll just, this may be more for you, and then you can translate it to the people you're talking to in your own vocabulary. The search for ground itself, for certainty, for constancy, for stability, for continuity, um, which interestingly enough, these are the very definitions of ego. That's an interesting thing. Yeah. That search in and of itself is revelatory. And so what's happening now when all that has been pulled out, you know, anti-ego is Bardo. So when we search for ground, the ability Oh, I think I know who it was. It was probably um, uh, Pema Kanta Rinpoche, where she has this beautiful st statement about, you know, we can transform rupture into rapture, I'm paraphrasing her, if in fact we can stay with the rupture, if in fact we have the courage to just hang out in space. And, and so, you know, Ellen, uh, Watts wrote a beautiful book, I believe, called The Wisdom of Uncertainty or something like that. Pema Children has made a career out of this sort of thing. 
it's a it's a very interesting thing to invite people to to do and say maybe ask them what is it like to just be with that sense of unsettledness and anxiety and uncertainty it, it, be curious what what does that really feel like and why after you look at it for a while why is that a problem it may be a problem <laughs> it may be a problem for your ego and maybe see this is where you're taking them right because it is, it's a huge problem for the ego because it's a violent assault on the egoic agenda. But so what I do with these sort of things I need it is I say, okay, you're feeling some really crappy feeling, okay? Start where you are. Pema Children wrote a book on that. And really be interested, be a curious. Remember I told you, I, I, yeah, I'm a Buddhist, but Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. When people ask me, like, I'm a curious, I'm interested, I'm curious. And so I say, well, maybe be curious. Feel this thing deeply. And here's a real interesting sidebar. The Vijadra, Trungpa Rinpoche once said, the full complete experience of duality is in fact the experience of non-duality. So there's a kicker. Go directly into that feeling. That's a little bit advanced, but play with that for you. For them say, go into that feeling and, and ask yourself, self, <laughs> self, why is it a problem that I'm feeling this? It may not feel good, but who on earth told me in the contract when I was born that life was supposed to feel good? That, it's in the small print. And life is not about feeling good. It includes the whole thing. So you say, I'm feeling like crap. I'm afraid, I'm uncertain, I'm scared. You know, and you go, well, is there a problem with that? And the first of all, they're gonna go, what? Of course it's a problem. Well, really? Go into that feeling. And then what you're doing, it's like, you know, it's really interesting to me, Anita. It's like, you know, they often talk about the Buddha as the divine physician. I like to think of him also as much as the divine attorney. And by that, what I mean is if you ask the right questions, questions are so much more important than answers. In fact, Buddhism starts with a question. Buddhism does not start with answers. Buddhism starts with questions like science. So you ask the questions, you invite these people, what does it do? It sets the mind in a particular direction. And then they look in deep within and they're looking at this thing called, man, I just feel anxious. I really feel anxious. And you go, okay, what does that really feel like? And then the only way they can answer that, they have to shut up because otherwise they're not feeling it. They're just expressing it, right? They're already disconnected. So that's going to stop their mind, stop their mouth. That's stage one. And then they're probably going to close their eyes, stage two. Then they're probably going to drop back into their body. And they're going to start to look, the Pashna. And they're going to go deep into this. And you know what's going to happen? All their conceptual things are going to fall away. And they're going to be left with this sensation, this awareness that has no words. And then they may come out of that and go, wow, that was really interesting. Whoa, it's like my mind completely stopped. And I was just left with this amazing feeling. And then you'll say, well, did it feel bad? Oh, that's interesting. It really didn't feel bad until I FedExed out of it and started commenting on it. You see? Explore something like that. This is a game changer. It's part of this complaint practice. It's Stay a wonderful technique. And then go into it deeper. This is a game changer practice. So that's what comes to mind for today. Thank okay. you so much. All right, maybe one more. And then again, we'll do this next week um, or whatever. <laughs> we'll see, but... Last um, no other hand raised, but I do have some writing questions. Oh, okay. <laughs> Fire away. Okay. 
Um, I'm in Manhattan. I've been alone for six weeks. When I go out, there is tangible fear on the street. Everyone has to wear a mask. I fluctuate between being able to hold quite powerful feelings and being overwhelmed by loneliness and hopelessness. I can see these as mind states when they pass, but they are sometimes very strong in the moment. Any practice advice to regain awareness when overwhelmed? They are be these are being triggered by a level of distress and difficulty here in the city that I've never encountered before. Yeah, no kidding, huh? Whoa, this is exactly where this crying practice comes in um, that I'm going to talk about next week. <sighs> what to do for today. Um, you know, first of all, realize that everything that you're feeling is like totally normal. I mean, you'd have to be like an insensate, you know, person to not feel these things. Um, one question I might just put forward to another, th there are a number of ways to work with this. And this is the great gift of, of understanding all these different little tips, tricks, and tools is that you can bring a, a, a variety of array of, you know, array of meditations, contemplations to work with these sorts of things. Um, all of which will be helpful because they help um, reframe, contextualize the experience. But one thing that, that you can do is, is first of all, realize that this is the, the absolute 100% natural consequence of what's occurring. And that we shouldn't, you know, again, I often say, don't, sh don't should on yourself. Don't should on yourself. I, sh you know, I should be this, I should be feeling this. I shouldn't be feeling that. That's bullshit. You're a human being. You're going to feel a heap of hurt. That's part of the human condition. And that human condition is on overdrive right now. That's the reality concentrate. And so one thing that you may want to explore, and then maybe next week when I come back and talk more about this crying practice, is, is pay, pay some attention to um, how you may be able to experience these things and, and not give them a place to land. In other words, somewhat related to the previous thing and also to what Joseph was saying you know, an hour ago, that you can, app, you can have these feelings that just do not feel good. I mean, they overwhelm. I mean, just the infinite variety of, of all these variations of feeling shitty. See if you can just stay with that, with feeling it, but not feeding it. In other words, just be there. Be there. You know, it's like Suzuki Roshi said, right? Be a good bonfire. Be a good bonfire. Allow the, 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 the fires of this tragedy to, to just burn. That's just what they do. But at the same time, notice within that permission, because crying practice is permission practice, permission to be human, notice the flicker, constant flicker back of wanting to reference it to me. I'm feeling shitty. I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm feeling whatever. And that leads to a very profound revelatory practice because fundamentally, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're not feeling that. You're not anxious. I'm not anxious. I'm not overwhelmed. There is no I behind it. There's just this raw energy that we append as unwanted, that we further append and overlay with all these labels, these names. Those are all at what are called 
um, big word, adventitious defilement, secondary, tertiary, quaternary additions onto this fundamental raw experience. That by the way, if you go very deeply into that, there's nobody there. There's nobody there. And therefore, nobody's feeling the overwhelm. So that's a more absolute level way. And I, I find this to be just breathtakingly powerful, a um, little bit more than we can get into today. But for now, allow yourself to just feel it, but don't feed it. And then be really curious, like the last question. Wow, this is really interesting. Where am I feeling it? What's its color? What's its shape? What does it really look like? And then see what you find, see what you see. So we'll come back to this a little bit more because it, it is such a, a potentially transformative um, practice. And again, that's the opportunity. This is the opportunity that we have to take this, this, these otherwise just really difficult obstacles and using the wisdom tools, truly turn them into opportunities. It's not rhetoric. This is not metaphysical mumbo jumbo. If we relate to this stuff happening right now the way we can, you will look back upon this experience as one of the most transformative times of your life. But that's not gonna happen by itself. Inner work is inner work. It has to be informed by this sort of teaching. So thank you everybody so much. Um, we'll do this again next week. I love it. Really, I have to tell you, I'm grooving on it. And so um, it seems to be working. Uh, so see you again next uh, Thursday, same time, same place, so to speak. Until then, wash your hands and open your heart. Bye.